0: Good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Stillman here for another Monday Masterclass. Today, we are going to be talking about the dark side of iron supplements, scary, cliffhanger, intense, uh, foreshadowing in the title, which I'm sure is why you clicked on this and decided it was time to learn more. So without further ado, let's jump in to what we're going to talk about. And as I get into that, I wanna explain why I'm so passionate about this. So people are taught that iron's a nutrient. You need more of it, get plenty of iron, blah, blah, blah. Lots of multivitamins include iron, lots of supplements include iron. Many, many people out there are told that they are iron deficient. Undoubtedly, iron deficiency is a real thing. It happens, I see it, I'll occasionally give someone iron, but there's a dark side to iron supplementation that's rooted fundamentally in our experience as a species on planet Earth. And I wanna, I wanna really explain that before I jump into the papers today, because if you don't understand the context in which iron operates within your body and how you're wired to hang on to iron, you will get so turned around by the iron literature, it's not even funny. So iron is essential for the production of hemoglobin. And we're gonna get into some numbers later, some exact numbers. But if you run out of hemoglobin, i.e. blood, the thing in your blood that carries oxygen, you die. And it can take minutes to exsanguinate. This is why I'm actually a really big fan of people carrying around things like tourniquets. Believe it or not, I, Dr. Stillman, general internist, not a surgeon, not a trauma doctor, not an ER doctor, I carry a tourniquet. I carry it because I've had more than one person in my life see someone bleed out who they could potentially have saved. Now... Bleeding out can happen, as I said, in minutes, if you're traumatized in the right way. And again, that's why I like carrying a tourniquet. But because of this, our bodies are exceptionally good at hanging on to blood. And the rate-limiting factor for making blood overwhelmingly is iron. Because all the other components that go into making a red blood cell, they they are used, and then your body gets more of them, and then it moves on, right? But you have to have grams of iron in your body in order to make a full complement of red blood cells. This means that if you lose grams of iron in battle or hunting a wild animal that happens to attack you and make you bleed a lot, right? If a woman loses grams of iron in childbirth between blood loss and the baby, right? You can lose huge quantities of iron extremely fast low quantities of iron leave you very vulnerable they leave you feeling weak sluggish fatigued in the nutrition mineral balancing world we look at iron as a strong element it confers this strength to the personality but what's interesting is it creates a brittleness to the personality Uh, it creates a a kind of like a um i don't quite know what to say it's like a uh, almost like they got something to prove and the reason this is so important is that if you look at the actual chemical principles of iron in the body, yes, it's an essential nutrient. But when it's present in excess, it creates absolute metabolic mayhem. Why? Because there's so much of it. On a pa- on a sheer numbers basis, iron dwarfs almost every other mineral in the human body. You have grams of iron, you have milligrams of copper, you have milligrams of zinc. You have milligrams of every other trace element. You have grams of things like potassium, uh, magnesium, uh, calcium, sodium. These are what we call the macro minerals. But after them comes iron. And it creates free radicals as abundantly or more abundantly than anything else in the periodic table of elements. And if you keep up with the health and nutrition literature, you know that free radicals are really important to pay attention to because... You need free radicals to be alive. That's why pouring antioxidants into biological systems, as we've tried many times, doesn't result in improvements in longevity. But too much is too much. Too much is like a fire. It's burning, it's burning, it's smoldering, gradually it eats your whole home and turns into a giant conflagration. So you want to be at a sweet spot of oxidative stress and free radical production. And one of the keys to this is actually balancing iron, believe it or not so the first paper we're going to go into today is one of the um i'm not going to say it's one of the first because this guy jerome sullivan has published extensively on this he was the first person that i know of to propose the hypothesis that stored iron was responsible for a great deal of ischemic heart disease and he i don't even know if he's still publishing but he pounded the table on this for a long time and he was absolutely onto something and i want to explain how this works So excess iron is capable of promoting myocardial injury, that's heart injury, is present in animals with normal iron status. What that means is their blood levels look normal, but they have enough iron around to harm their heart. Other investigators have shown that decreasing levels of stored iron by manipulating iron status in vivo is associated with significant decreases in oxygen radical induced injury in several tissues other than the heart. Translation. When you reduce the levels of iron in the body, you can reduce oxidative stress. It therefore stands to reason that if you if you can reduce oxidative stress by reducing iron, reducing iron may lead to an improvement in overall health and longevity. And Sullivan goes through a lot of your initial supporting information on this in this paper, which is excellent, and I recommend that you read it later. Um, <clears throat> but he's not alone in believing this is a major, major problem. So Leo Zakarski is one of the top researchers in the field of iron, iron overload. This is from 2014, so it's not too old, but it's also not too, uh, too recent. And he points out here, this is commenting on a really brown, groundbreaking study called the Copenhagen City Heart Study, where they found a very significant relationship between iron and your risk of death and your risk of heart attack. And anyone that talks about risk of death, specifically, from, or, or, uh, specifically or especially all-cause mortality, they get my attention because that's what I really care about as a generalist. So he comments here, the relationships between baseline ferritin concentrations and risk of all cause and cause specific mortality in almost 9,000 individuals enrolled in this study, 23 years of follow-up, very extensive follow-up, 6,300 of these people died. The majority of these people died. What they found is that there was a, well, multifactorially adjusted hazard ratios for total mortality in individuals with ferritin values below versus above 200 micrograms per liter showed significantly lower mortality overall, and separately for men and women with lower ferritin concentrations. Translation, the lower the serum ferritin level, the lower the risk of death. Cause specific mortality below versus above the 200 microgram per liter threshold was significantly lower for cancer, metabolic disease, and cardiovascular disease. That's a very, very big deal. This is a relatively large study. These are hard to do. There aren't a lot of them out there. And the reason this gets my attention is specifically, not only because of the magnitude of the finding, but the simple reality of there is almost no downside for blood donation. The worst thing I've ever seen happen to a patient with blood donation is they passed out or they felt like tired and wiped out afterwards, which is also why I don't just blindly recommend it, right? I like to say in these videos, this is not medical advice, it's education. You know you should talk to your doctor or other licensed qualified healthcare provider before making changes to your diet lifestyle exercise supplement medication regimen etc cetera, etc cetera, right but i go into iron labs with all of my patients because i'm very curious to know what their iron status is because there's a lot of value in that information and one of the most valuable things i find is detecting people who are iron overloaded early sadly our healthcare system has devolved into a permanent race to save the patient who is dying acutely there's almost no preventative care really being done and the preventative care that's being done as you probably know if you're watching this revolves almost entirely around things that hospital systems clinics and labs can do for you oh we have this lab to detect this problem we have this thing to detect that problem we have this program to screen you for this problem it's not about, hey, how can we help you? What can we give you that's free and easy and cheap or you know, affordable at least that you can do to improve your chances of leading a full, healthy, happy life? Now, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about our tendency to hold on to iron. Because the obvious thing here is that, well, why would we benefit so much from this? And I, I said earlier that we, we were wired to hang on to iron we're very avid for it we don't actually have any means or way to excrete iron we just hang on to all of it and because we can lose a lot of it uh the body is also trying to absorb a lot of it from the gut the reason why um this is so important is that over historically we lost a lot of blood almost no matter what we did there were more traumatic accidents there was more violence more violent crime there was more childbirth women used to you know they didn't have an option to not menstruate because they couldn't take we didn't have hormonal birth control, now women have that that option, right? And so blood loss was part of normal natural life. And by introducing therapeutic phlebotomy, we're basically giving ourselves the option of losing the blood that we might have lost in nature before we made the environment so pristine and safe. And this also has to do with parasites because many of of the worms that live in or can live in the human intestine they will hook into the intestinal wall and they will feed on your blood, specifically hookworm, which in the United States and in particular in the American South was an epidemic after the civil war due to a lack of sanitation. And that actually was a major public health victory of the early 1900s. They actually instituted outhouses throughout the South and this massively reduced the burden of hookworm and led to a real improvement in, in people's nutrition and their well-being. But anyway, So bringing back phlebotomy allows us to restore this natural loss of blood uh, that we really would be uh, dealing with in nature. Again, these numbers are not small. So the hazard ratio for total mortality increased by 13% for each 100 microgram per liter increase in ferritin concentration. That's a very remarkable change, showing a very clear relationship between the higher the serum ferritin, which is a good marker in the blood for iron, Total body iron, it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. That's a great surrogate marker for that. And you see that as the air iron level goes up, your mortality goes up. And Look at how this translates in years of life. Median survival was 79 years for those who had a concentrations under 200, 76 for levels between 200 and 400, 72 for between 400 and 600, and just 55 years with anyone with a ferritin concentration in excess Of 600 micrograms per liter now as if our failure to lose blood the way we used to wasn't enough you also have to remember that people are doing some things to increase their iron intake significantly much of our food is fortified with iron I believe this is a gross mistake Uh, there's no in my opinion good reason to fortify the the food supply with iron because it's actually harmful for the subset of the population that tend to accumulate iron at pathological levels. These people have a disease called hemochromatosis. I have one of these genes. We're basically making these people die faster by putting iron in the food supply. And, you know, yes, you can deal with it with therapeutic phlebotomy, but you know, at the end of the day, people should probably eat enough iron in their diet. And that should be their business, not the business of, you know, the public health establishment to tell bakers what to put into their bread. So many foods are iron fortified, and that, in my opinion, is a big problem. The other thing you'll find is that iron levels have a lot to do, and how iron is bound has a lot to do with inflammation. Wherever you're gonna find excess iron, you're gonna find excess inflammation, and there's sort of a chicken or the egg problem here because you'll find, for example, men who have super low testosterone levels, and they're overweight, and they're depressed, and they have all these symptoms of low T, and their ferritin levels are very high, they have a lot of inflammation, Via the, not only the, the the ferritin but other markers of, in, of of inflammation, inflammatory markers, and you'll normalize their testosterone and their ferritin levels may come back into normal. So there's this interesting relationship between free radical stress, metabolic syndrome, high iron, hormonal dysregulation that I don't think has been. It's very it's very easy to see. It's not hiding, but how exactly it all works is very complicated because all these systems are interconnected and at the end of the day this comes back to the fact that iron is a really important metric of your nutrition that's easy to track and can make or break your health so this is a quick presentation that i put together on iron overload i'm going to be giving this um at a presentation in australia uh, next month i won't unfortunately be able to make it down there they know that however my um recording will be available to people who sign up for the conference and i wrote about this more in my book dying to be free in chapter two check it out buy a copy the links in my bio uh and i start this this with going over this basic iron paradox which i've just shared with you which is basically that this is a nutrient yes but it can also be a poison because it creates so much free radical damage and i want to run you guys through some of the numbers here because i think they're really interesting So there's about three to five grams of iron in the whole body. The body has no way to actively excrete it again. It loses one to 1.5 milligrams per day. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny loss compared to the total body volume in a healthy adult. And it tends to accumulate it over time. Look at some of these numbers. 60 grams of spinach, that's just two cups, 1.6 milligrams of iron, well more than your daily losses. And this is just a nice big salad half a pound of steak is four milligrams of iron that's a huge dose compared to daily losses the average 2000 calorie eating daily omnivore gets 15 to 30 milligrams of iron daily this dwarfs this number over here we get iron from food yes we can have some issues that cause us to fail to absorb it um yes we've got some losses we talked about how those are less prevalent now um and now i want to talk though about how much um, or where the iron is. So you got four thousand. Let's just say four thousand in, in total. You've got about twenty five hundred milligrams in red blood cells. You lose two hundred and twenty to two hundred and fifty milligrams of iron per pint of of whole blood that you donate. I donate every two months. You've got about ten pints of blood on board. You know, in the average adult. Obviously, that varies with size, but whatever. A thousand milligrams is stored in your spleen and your liver in the macrophages there. And there's 500 milligrams in ferroproteins, cytochromes, etc., throughout your body. Mitochondria all over the body rely on iron-sulfur clusters for uh, transport of electrons through the electron transport chain. Only three milligrams is bound to plasma transferrin. That's a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion. Women lose zero to 200 milliliters of menstrual blood per month. That's zero. In round numbers, that's zero to 200 milligrams of iron. Okay. So let's say you donate, that's one pint, four pints is one gram of iron. Let's say you, you donate it every eight weeks, which is every two months. That's the maximum you can donate without a doctor's note. So it takes 32 weeks, the better part of a year, to get rid of one gram of iron. Now let's say how long does it take for us to bring that iron back on board? Well, let's say that's 220 to 250 milligrams of iron. Let's say the recommended daily allowance is, is eight, it is. And let's just say we only uh, absorb that. of that, if you could use those numbers, a very low intake of 8 milligrams, which again is much lower than the average omnivore, you would need to consume over 3,600 milligrams of iron, and this would take 450 days. So is it possible to iron deplete your body if you donate blood like crazy, and let's say calorie restrict and eat a low iron diet? Yes. And if you have bad absorption, that makes it even worse. However... What happens if you're eating more iron than this? In my practice, what I see is that most patients are getting between 15 and 50, one five and five zero, milligrams of iron daily. So at 15 milligrams and 6% absorption, all of a sudden it's only 244 days. At 50 milligrams and 6%, it's only 73 days. Now let's go back, remember, every eight weeks, 32 weeks, 32 times seven, 224 days, as what it takes to get rid of one gram of iron. What if you're absorbing 18%, which is the higher end of what we absorb? So at 15 milligrams, it takes 81 days. At 50 milligrams, it takes 24 days. Why am I boring you with these numbers? Hopefully they're not boring. I think they're really interesting. I'm telling you all this because if you're the average omnivore who never donates blood, there's no way you're not getting enough iron. Now, keywords there, average omnivore, right? I don't mean those of you on a massively calorie-restricted 600 to 1,000 calorie diet. I'm not talking about you vegans or other people who just avoid iron-rich foods like red meat. I'm not talking about you. The vast majority of the people I see, the vast majority of the people in the world, as far as I know, are omnivores. And the idea that they have iron deficiency is, I think, very flawed because unless they're a woman who's got heavy menses they don't really have significant losses and then the question becomes okay well if they don't have iron deficiency why do all these people have low ferritin levels because that's where people get this diagnosis of iron deficiency from people say well my ferritin is low therefore i don't have enough iron when i take iron supplements i feel better i do better my red blood cells come up the iron can be trapped in other tissues i don't have time to talk about this today because I want to get to some other papers and studies. But the bottom line here I want to share with you is it's way more complicated than this. It's way more complicated than people are being taught to think about it in the conventional mainstream narrative. And I have seen people recover from profound anemias in a matter of weeks to months just by changing their diet. didn't, I mean, I used supplements for the record, but changing the diet was critical because there was something wrong with what they were doing and how they were eating, and they were having trouble absorbing it. They were having trouble mobilizing it from body tissues. They were having trouble absorbing it into or creating red blood cells or whatever. It's way more complicated than just how much iron you're getting. And that's why my two biggest questions for people are really this. How much are you really getting? And how much do you really have? Because if you're a hard-charging, 50 milligrams of iron eating young lady who does CrossFit five times a week and is tired and has a low ferritin level and is on hormonal birth control and is therefore not bleeding every month and hasn't been for five years, the idea that you have a low iron level, just based on the biochemistry of this, doesn't make sense. Anyway, what's the prevalence of iron overload? And why is this important? Why is it near and dear to my heart? It's important and it's near and dear to my heart because the reality is you're being set up for your next heart attack, stroke, or cancer decades before the event. Decades. And as iron accumulates, we believe, based on the literature, much of which I've reviewed here, some of which I've reviewed here, there's a lot of it for the record, As it accumulates, it's creating this stress, it's creating these problems, it's creating and it's snowballing. And so the earlier you can get out ahead of this, the better off your patient's going to do. At least that's my experience. And that's my experience personally as someone who has this mutation. So hereditary hemochromatosis is is a disease where you've got special genes that make you not just good at holding onto iron, but really, really, really good at holding onto iron. These people, if they have say a double mutation, Many of them will wind up diagnosed in their 50s or 60s because they never got appropriate medical care, and sometimes, I hate to say this, this is on the clinicians. Because this is not that common, and because doctors are so incredibly overburdened by our current medical system, which is absolutely imploding in real time, um, because of that, many patients don't get diagnosed. And so I think it's worthwhile to think about whether or not this may be going on in any clinical uh, uh, scenario. I'm particularly sensitive to this diagnosis in hard-charging, high-achieving men who tend to have been eating a high meat diet their whole life, setting them up for iron overload, and don't realize that blood donation is not only something that's ethical in terms of saving other people's lives, et cetera, but also maybe medically good for them because no one's told them. In fact, quite the contrary, the medical profession tends to sort of look down its nose at the physicians of yesteryear who used to prescribe blood donation. The other thing is hereditary hemochromatosis, while it's rare, is not really that rare. So in this study, they looked at a huge number of patients in primary care practices, over 16,000 people who had never been diagnosed and what they found using their screening criteria of a serum ferritin of 200 micrograms per liter or more and a uh, serum transferrin saturation of 55% or more they found that the prevalence of clinically proven and biopsy proven hemochromatosis combined was 4.5 per 1000 people right so not a ton of people but i want you to understand something the majority of people who are going to have the worst outcome from this disease are going to be what we call homozygous which means they have two copies of the allele. And let's say you've got two people who are heterozygous, they may never find out, but they may have elevated total body iron relative to the general populace. So could these people benefit more from blood donation? And if the prevalence of full-blown disease is 4.5%, how many people are walking around who just haven't gotten there yet with their iron stores? And how many people are walking around with sort of a low grade level because they've got only one gene who are always gonna slip through the cracks of the system unless you start screening for it. And that's why if I find an elevated ferritin level in someone in my practice, I'll generally walk them through what the process of gene mutation testing looks like so that we can establish this. And there's another reason why I do this. If you've got this gene, you're setting up a certain proportion of your offspring to have this illness if you're a homozygote it's hundred percent of them if you're a heterozygous it's 50 percent of them statistically so i think it's worth knowing this when i started to donate blood anecdotally i felt much better right many of my patients have had the same experience i will i'm not kidding when i tell you that some of the men who i've told to do go donate blood have told me that it changed their lives they felt so much better and they were so glad and they were so grateful and i'm really I was very surprised by this, frankly. I did not expect it, and I was very gratified by it because it's free and um, it's easy. Okay, enough about that. So why is this not more widely talked about? Why do doctors not know a lot about this? This is a great review article on the iron overload syndromes. Clinicians are taught about iron overload mostly in in relationship to these iron overload symptoms or syndromes. The thalassemias, these are all special anemias that cause you to have too much iron. Chronic liver disease, not and, and the reason I highlighted these three is that they're actually pretty uh, common. They're particularly common, I would say, in my practice. So thalassemias are common, particularly around, amongst people of Southeast Asian and Mediterranean ancestry. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is only getting more common and is largely a disease of diet and lifestyle, and iron is part of what fuels it. And so when they say that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a secondary iron overload syndrome, meaning it's causing iron overload, I actually question that, because the iron itself is going to contribute to metabolic dysfunction and disease in the liver itself. And the same thing is true of alcoholic liver disease. Now, anyone heading towards these illnesses, I would suggest checking out their iron status is a really good idea, because it may be part of helping them feel better and optimize their metabolism. There's some great other books on this that I'll mention, uh, like uh, Dumping Iron by P.D. Mangan, which is where I think I first learned about this, and then Iron the Most Toxic Element by a guy named Jim Moon, who's now passed on. If you wanna learn more about that, I recommend those two books. Iron uh, phlebotomy, therapeutic phlebotomy is what we call, by the way, blood donation for a therapeutic purpose, as in benefiting the patient. Uh, it's even been proposed as a, as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And this wouldn't surprise me because what you find when you look at the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease, um, what you'll find is that it has a lot to do with these issues, right? So increased stored body and stored iron is associated with common medical conditions such as diabetes and vascular disease that increase the risk for the development of Alzheimer's. Increased stored iron could also promote oxidative stress, free radical damage, and vulnerable neurons, a critical early change in Alzheimer's disease. A ferrocentric, iron-centric model of Alzheimer's disease described here forms the basis of a rational, easily testable experimental therapeutic approach for Alzheimer's disease. One of the things that I'm doing to keep my brain healthy is donating blood. And I understand why people will say, well, this hasn't been tested, we don't know, more studies are needed, totally understand that perspective but at the same time what is the real downside of me going to donate blood every couple of months what's the real downside of you dear listener going to donate blood every couple of months like I told you the worst thing I've ever seen happen to a patient not that worse things can't happen right I mean there's always the weird out out there unbelievable bad thing that happens to people that just just waiting to show up and pop up on the next issue of national Enquirer or, whatever they're selling at the grocery store checkout counter right but the worst thing i've seen happen is people feel tired and they need more time to recover than they'd anticipated uh, or they pass out so anyway food for thought another thing by the way i'd mentioned about alzheimer's disease you'll notice that the more sophisticated and advanced our society has gotten the more alzheimer's disease has risen in prevalence and severity I think this fits well with this hypothesis although i will also tell you there's many other factors in this like for example artificial light at night but what does artificial light at night do it ruins circadian rhythms circadian rhythms have everything to do with modulating and protecting us from oxidative stress specifically melatonin nature's most potent antioxidant so there's a lot of ins and outs here that i don't want to i don't have time to go over all of them for you current applications of therapeutic phlebotomy therapeutic phlebotomy as i said is phlebotomy for a therapeutic purpose this paper is not that new but i gotta tell you the therapeutic phlebotomy literature is not very hot right now if you put this into google scholar the top papers are from anywhere from 5 to 50 years ago no one is looking at this i'm sad that no one's looking at it but i gotta tell you guys the simple fact of the matter is if you haven't figured it out from watching my content before Nobody studies and promotes what they don't get paid to study and promote. So if you think your healthcare should be free and you should consume all your content for free, good luck. My practice is full of people who've consumed countless podcasts, who've read countless articles, they're on all these newsletters, they have information overload, they don't know what to focus on, they don't know what matters, no one solved their problem. Why? Because no one sold, no one gave them information they needed. To get well they gave them the information that they got paid to give them and i don't hate the player i hate the game i think the system is very broken but part of this is because people have a resistance a natural resistance to they don't want to pay people for their time for their health this is a big mistake people need to stop making it and until they stop making it the world's health is going to continue to be let's just say mediocre at best james has a question Doctor, does donating platelets also reduce iron? When I call, um, I think you mean the Red Cross. They sometimes ask me if I wish to donate platelets. No, donating platelets does not help you reduce iron. So, anyway, uh, blood donation is amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about it. And why I wanted to bring up this paper is, you'll notice if you read this paper, the applications of therapeutic phlebotomy are very, very, very few. Very, very few. And they're, they're so niche, I don't even wanna talk about them, except for hemochromatosis, which I've already alluded to. They do pay lip service in here to other indications, but they mention every time that more studies are needed. Again, I respect this perspective. However, I humbly submit that since there's almost no downside, you know, if it's me, which it is, it is me, I'm going out and donating blood because I think this is a good idea, just for the record. And they have already looked at some of these things and they found some really compelling data, right? So look at this randomized controlled trial, Leo et al observed that iron reduction by phlebotomy can lower the risk of cancer occurrence, 38 malignancies versus 60 in a group in which iron reduction therapy was not used. That's a hazard ratio of 0.65. That's a really big deal. What if that's a real finding? Sure, it could be spurious. Sure, it could be less than that, but it could be better than that too. This is incredibly good news if it's real. I think it's really sad that no one out there is uh, publishing on this. Because if reducing iron does reduce your risk of cancer and malignancy, it would be a massive improvement for public health. And that's why I really agree with Dr. Zakarski in this title to his his paper that we talked about earlier. Ferrotoxic disease, the next great public health challenge. This, This was in 2014 the public health experts are still totally and completely hopelessly out to lunch on this. Do not expect them to wake up soon. It's not going to happen. So anyway, that's another reason why I donate blood. Okay, I talked about this or alluded to it earlier. So iron and serum ferritin have been associated with hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and other cardiovascular risk factors. It was postulated that lowering iron levels could help to reduce these risk factors. Patients with metabolic syndrome who underwent iron reduction by phlebotomy had statistically significant differences in systolic blood pressure, glucose, hemoglobin A1C, HDL, cholesterol, iron, and ferritin compared to controls. Translation. Patients who had problems with high glucoses and being overweight or obese metabolic syndrome who underwent iron reduction by phlebotomy, i.e. blood donation had statistically significant differences in their blood pressure, their glucose, their long-term glucose by A1C, their cholesterol levels, their iron, and their ferritin. This is a very, very important finding. Now, again, they they do say this trial has some limitations, blah, 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 lots of limitations. Again, this is a really big deal if dumping blood or dumping iron can have this big of an effect. so sadly again not a lot of people are studying this but it's still the results are compelling again several randomized control trials were conducted in order to assess the efficacy of phlebotomy and interferon in the management of chronic hepatitis c compared to interferon alone this is about you know can iron in the liver contribute to changes or degeneration of the liver in the disease of hepatitis um, in conjunction with this viral presence or process not to talk too much about that, which is a whole other kettle of fish. So one trial demonstrated a better and sustainable sustainable viral response in the interferon with phlebotomy groups compared to the interferon alone. That's very interesting, right? What if people who think they have chronic EBV or chronic CMV or chronic this or that or the other virus or bacteria or whatever infection, right? What if these people will improve with iron reduction because the oxidative stress from the iron is part of the disease process? I think this is very, very interesting opportunity to help these people, many of whom I don't believe have a real genuine infectious problem at all. Uh, the authors concluded that phlebotomy is a useful adjuvant therapy to interferon in the treatment of chronic hepatitis C, but to my knowledge, no one is using it. Again, they studied the effect of phlebotomy on patients not responding to the interferon therapy and showed that phlebotomy can improve histological liver changes in 50% of patients with chronic hep C. That's really interesting. By the way, it implies or suggests that perhaps uh, phlebotomy could improve many other liver diseases as well. And again, what do you have to lose? Now, blood donation becomes a little bit tricky with people who've got liver diseases, particularly the hepatitis viruses, because you don't want those things passing through the blood supply, but it's not a problem that's insurmountable. You can find a way to get rid of some blood. So all those are some interesting findings, food for thought for you guys. The last paper I wanna share with you is one of my favorites on iron overload. So one of the things that you can use blood donation for is helping people reduce or manage their high blood pressure. Now this isn't widely known, it's not widely recommended. Um, It also isn't some kind of panacea, you can't just normalize everyone's blood pressure with this, but you can get them started and it is and has been studied as a treatment for resistant hypertension and so if you see and when i see a high ferritin level in someone who's also got a robust level of red blood cells who's also got um a uh, sorry a high blood pressure a high ferritin and high red blood cell count why would i not offer them phlebotomy it makes perfect sense so what happens when you donate blood to your blood pressure so in this study it was very small 15 people who are already on really heavy duty, triple combination of antihypertensive therapy, right? That's three different drugs for this this problem. That's a lot. So the mean arterial pressure was lowered from 140 uh, millimeters of mercury to 123, plus or minus a 15 or 12 millimeter mercury window, right, of uh, a variance after just 14 days. No serious side effects were observed. The duration of the hypertensive effective phlebotomy was about four weeks. So you could do this more often in someone who had a really robust hemoglobin level. Some people will tolerate that, particularly men who are on testosterone replacement therapy. There is such a thing as over phlebotomy, over over uh, over phlebotomizing someone that you need to be aware of, which is why I don't, generally speaking, write a doctor's note to have people donate more than every two months. I have yet to have a patient. Well, I have one patient who needed a doctor's note, and it wasn't because of that. He needed it because he. Had a high blood pressure which of course we then improved by having him donate some blood so all of this to go back to the title of this this talk is to caution you against people who say that you need an iron supplement most of you the vast 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 majority of you are getting enough iron from your diet this includes women who are told ad nauseum that they need more iron this even includes some women who have low ferritin and low iron levels in their blood. Why? Because you don't have a problem with iron intake. You may have a problem with iron absorption and you may have a problem with iron mobilization from your liver and your bone marrow where it's needed to um, supply your body with iron for red blood cell production. So all of these things have to be taken into account when you're thinking about whether or not you should take Iron supplements. And for my money, I do not take them, not only because of my partially positive status for the hemochromatosis gene that puts me at risk of iron overload, but I also don't take them because I eat a perfectly adequate diet in iron and have never had low iron levels at all. And I'm currently doing a running experiment on myself to see how much I can donate before I run out. And so far, I've been donating like clockwork every two months for almost a year and my ferritin levels are under 100 i feel great i feel even better after blood donation and i'm still looking forward to seeing uh, more about how that turns out and i'm running labs regularly to uh, check my iron levels and uh, see how i'm responding so as always thank you for watching check out um things we're up to in the link tree below we are currently enrolling a hair tissue mineral analysis course where we're going to cover the mineral dynamics as we see them through the hair. It's a very interesting test. It's a test I absolutely love. Um, If you uh, need more information on that, again, it's in my link tree. We will also be having a webinar this Saturday on uh, how minerals explain so much that we see of the fatigue and so many of the medical problems we see today in society, how these minerals are, are playing a role in that and what you can do about it. That's Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, October the, I think it's 28th, 28th. And as always, you can apply to become a patient at my practice through the link in my link tree. You can also join my coaching program, Fundamentals of Wellness, where we talk about this a lot. And lastly, but not least, you can buy my book, Dying to be Free, which I in which I talk about a lot. Uh, this iron overload problem in more detail and with a little bit more historical context. So as always, everyone, thank you for watching this Monday Masterclass. And if you're interested in a Q&A with me, upgrade to the paid version of my Substack. Uh, that goes live or the, the Q&As go live at 4 p.m. on Mondays. Uh, and the paid um, Substack subscribers get the link to that in this post when it goes out. That's stillmanmd.substack.com. Take care, everyone. Have a great day and don't forget to get outside.